More injuries, more roster moves, more great performances, more to talk about. And that's just what we'll do next on Baseball HQ Radio. Learn to play the winner's way, because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, April the 15th, Jackie Robinson Day. It's show number 18 of the 2016 Fantasy Baseball season. I'm Patrick Davitt, your host, and we have another great Friday news and comments show for you. We'll have player news from the National League with Ray Murphy, looking at two sensational starts, outfield movement in Colorado and L.A., and from the American League with Jock Thompson, looking at Glenn Perkins' DL trip, Nomar Mazara's hot start, Rusny Castillo's demotion, and much more. We'll also have our commentaries from the expert analysts at BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In the Minor League Minute, analyst Rob Gordon reports on Detroit right-hander Michael Fulmer. In our Playing Time commentary, Ryan Bloomfield looks at speculating on saves in Minnesota while Darren Ruff's playing time takes a positive turn. In our Frequent Flyers commentary, Alex Becky looks at Malik Smith and Vince Velasquez. In our Pitcher Matchup segment, Greg Fishwick looks at Giovanni Gallardo at Colby Lewis, Bud Norris at Tom Kaler, and more weekend matchups. And in Master Notes, I'll be talking about arbitraging games played and a hidden hero behind Jackie Robinson. It's another Big Friday show. Thanks for joining us here at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? It's the 69th anniversary of one of the most important dates in baseball history. We gotta talk some baseball. And in the first inning of this Friday news and comment edition, as always, it's our League Watch News reports. Jock Thompson is on deck with the American League, and leading off, it's the National League report. Our regular National League correspondent, Harold Nichols, is moving house this weekend, and they say there's only three things worse than moving house for putting stress on a guy. Somebody dying in the family, getting divorced, or having Juan Uribe on your fantasy roster. Here, pinch hitting for Nick, BaseballHQ.com co-general manager and speculator columnist Ray Murphy. Ray, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Busy time of year, Patrick, but it's nice to have some games to watch. It is uh, a lot of fun this week, and especially on Thursday night of this week just past, two tremendous pitching performances. Uh, we'll talk about Vincent Velasquez in just a second, Ray, but first, how about the performance by St. Louis left-hander Jaime Garcia against the Milwaukee Brewers? Yeah, he was great. Uh, you know, Obviously a guy who's... Had some concerns about health here in the past, but you know, anytime you see somebody hang up a complete game shutout with a hit, a single hit, a single walk, 13 Ks, and 12 ground ball outs, so that's what 25 out of your 27 outs. That's uh, about as dominating as you can get. It was a tremendous, uh, a tremendous performance by Jaime Garcia, and it looks like something that we've been waiting for a, for a while, which is could Jaime Garcia take that step towards the elite? Do you think this is the breakout for Jaime Garcia? I think we're going to need more than one start of evidence of that. Uh, you know, a couple of things about his skill set that just don't match up with yesterday. I mean, even with healthy, he's when healthy, I should say, he's never been that kind of a strikeout guy. He's got a career dominance of 7.2 strikeouts, which in this day and age is pretty much dead average. You know, he he's traditionally made up for that with a big ground ball tilt, and you know that obviously was part of his performance yesterday. So you know, we know he owns that part of his skill set. But you know, keep in mind, you know, even just in his first outing last week, you know, he had a uh, matchup against the uh, the lowly Braves and managed only uh, four earned runs in six innings and I think a PQS three against that lowly Braves lineup. So, 
you know, a lot of things aligned well yesterday, and he took full advantage of them, but, you know, let's not declare graduation day just yet. Is he also an injury risk? Oh, sure. He's always an injury risk. The, you know, the litany of injuries in his background is not something we can, you know, sort of even forget about if we want to. I mean, there's a Tommy John in there seven or eight years ago. There's a shoulder rotator cuff problem. There's thoracic outlet syndrome in, I think that was 2014. I mean, you can, you know, sort of, you know, it's like playing the old, uh, the kids game operation, right? You can kind of point to any body part and point out something he's already had wrong with that. So yeah, it's not even like a case where he's got a, you know, single chronically bulky elbow or shoulder. And, you know, if somehow he finally got the right surgery to get it all sound, we could think that he's healthy. You know, his injuries kind of radiate all around his body. So it's you still got to kind of think of him as a ticking time bomb for what's going to go next. I noticed that he only had 195 innings as a career high for a season, and that was back in 2011. Since then, 130 is his high. That was last season, and in 2013 or 14, just 99 innings combined. Uh, to me, when you add it all up, I'm, I'm going to say we don't want to bet the mortgage on Jaime Garcia. Yeah, I mean, that's definitely the story. I think, you know, depending on your league rules, particularly if you're, you're in a – either a league that has a lot of bench or DL storage options, or you're in a shallower league where access to the free agent pool sort of allows you to get a replacement for Garcia whenever the day comes that he hits the DL, well then sure, take Garcia and the skills are pretty good so you can ride him while he's healthy, just don't expect, you know, a full season or really anything close to it, and if you set your expectations, you know, kind of in that range you were talking about, you know, 100, 150 innings, then you know, that's 100, 150 probably pretty good innings you get. And then when the bomb goes off, you just uh, go back to the waiver wire and see who's pitching well at that time. Ray, one of the issues you had with Garcia's fine start on Thursday was that it came after a relatively weak effort, a PQS 3. But Vincent Velasquez of the Phillies has had two excellent starts in a row, PQS 5s, including an opener at six scoreless innings with nine strikeouts against the Mets. Then on Thursday, wow. Yeah, I mean, what was that, 16 strikeouts and combined three hits and no walks yesterday in a complete game shutout that, you know, obviously with 16 strikeouts, you would think he's throwing a lot of pitches, but he also got out of there with, I don't know, I think it was 107 pitches or something like that too. Just a, you know, combination of, you know, pure dominance and efficiency that you just really kind of got to tip your cap to. So how confident should we be that Velasquez is the real deal? I feel better about him than Garcia, but let's not go calling him Clayton Kershaw yet. Uh, you know, in Houston last year, you know, he kind of worked in a sprint, in a swing role. You know, they kind of liked his arm, but, you know, had a bunch of other options in the rotation. And I think might have been trying to manage his workload a little bit. But, you know, he had a 437 ERA and a 440 XERA, so he deserved that ERA. That's worse than league average. And, you know, even though he's got an electric arm and a live fastball, you know, those numbers kind of just confirm for you that, you know, those alone don't make you a top or elite level starter. Um you know, he was a little better out of the bullpen, but now he's working in the rotation and, you know, that's, you know, seeing whether he can hold, his stuff can hold up over the whole season in that starting rotation is another open question. Certainly the gains he's made in his two starts so far with walks are very promising. And that's probably the best reason you have early on to maybe, you know, increase his ceiling a little bit for this year. But I mean, then again, he faced the Mets and the Padres, and yesterday he faced the Padres in an afternoon game on getaway day. Matt Kemp had the day off. Solarte's on the DL. B.J. Upton was hitting – Melvin Upton was hitting fifth. So, you know, <laughs> sure, he had a great day, but, you know, the odds – in these first two starts, you know, there were, uh, shall we say, some uh, favorable tailwinds behind him.
Makes you long for those coming San Diego Atlanta matchups, doesn't it? Uh, <laughs> uh, offensive slugfest, they're sure to be. Uh, uh, so Velasquez may be uh, obviously a little bit better of a candidate than Garcia, but you're not 100% in on him. Would you say that maybe Velasquez could be a sell high candidate after these two splendid starts? And maybe those decisions are always kind of contextual, right? I mean, if you're looking for you know, a situation where you don't have an ace starter or you need another ace starter and you need to place a bet somewhere on a guy coming from off the radar to be this year's, you know, Dallas Keiko or something like that. Hey, Velasquez seems like a great play for that at this point. And if that's something that, you you know, you get more benefit from actually holding him and having him pay off, then you do that. But if you're in a different kind of situation where, you know, you have some other needs on your roster and you maybe you actually want to reduce your risk profile, get a little something a little more established or reliable, you know, especially in a keeper league, maybe you want to, you know, turn him into a more reliable option and pocket a future draft pick or another prospect or something like that then yeah maybe you do think about taking it taking that big haul in i'm thinking in a keeper league as well if if you're going for a pennant this guy this velasquez guy could be the uh, linchpin of a really nice dump deal for you uh, to chances are you have him on anybody who has him rostered is going to have him at a relatively low price be a very uh, attractive commodity to deal for a couple of expiring star contracts pick up those studs you need that could make all the difference in in making a, a pennant run this year at the expense of maybe losing one of the best pitchers in the major leagues over the next couple but that's always the risk you take when you do dumping that's right and you know the other thing about that is he's a pitcher too so you know it might feel on the day you're trading him like you're trading away, you know, two or three years or however much control you have him left of a, you know, a blossoming starter. But, you know, there's also, you're also trading away the injury risk that comes with that. So if you're trading him away for, you know, a couple of really established veteran bats or something like that that come with a lower risk profile, then, you know, estimating how much you're losing by giving up a Velasquez, you know, might be kind of hard to calculate because there are some unknown risk factors there. And, maybe it doesn't hurt quite as much as it does on the day you pull the trigger. Now, you mentioned a PQS3 start. Uh, this year, BaseballHQ.com made some adjustments to a long-standing metric at the site, the pure quality start. Uh, what changes were made to reflect uh, the changes in what we know about pitching and what we know about how pitching works nowadays? Yeah, we actually wrote about this last season in sort of identifying the problem. Uh, Brent wrote a piece that uh, you know broke down sort of the PQS numbers, and you know we were floating on the area where you know in this high-pitching, high-strikeout environment, uh, you know, something like half of all starts were coming out at the dominance tier of PQS4 or PQS5. And that was really, you know, starting to cap the utility of the tool because, you know, when half of the starts are being reflected as dominant, that, you know, doesn't really, you know, that starts to muddy the information and it's not as actionable as you would like. So the exercise we went through this offseason was to kind of try to find a different set of criteria that would still be easy to calculate, which is the great feature of PQS is that you can eyeball a stat line and sort of do the PQS in your head, but give us, you know, a more reasonable distribution of starts. We wanted something where PQS 0 through 5 were pretty much evenly distributed against this, uh, across the scoring spectrum. And we think we've got that now, uh, you know, in brief, the changes, you know, there was a component for innings pitched that now is to get the point, you have to throw more than six innings. You have to throw six and a third, six and two thirds, etc. Um, similarly, you know, you could get the point for hits allowed by allowing as many hits per as you throw innings or less, but now we took away the equals. So now it's only you get the point for hits allowed if you give up fewer hits than innings pitched. 
we adjusted the strikeouts so that you have to have at least five strikeouts rather than two fewer than the number of innings you pitched in the old system. So that's, again, a nod to the higher strikeout era we're in. Uh, similarly, we tightened up the K to BB ratio. Now has to be three, essentially. And the home run effect isn't changed. You still have to allow zero home runs to get zero or one home run to get your point for the home run scoring. So the overall event effect of that is, you know, we got the model what I was sort of talking about earlier where, you know, we re- retrofitted all of last year's starts into the new system and PQS zero through five are all distributed pretty equally. They're all in, uh, you know, 15 to 20 percent of starts all fall into each one of those buckets pretty evenly. So it's a much more, uh, you know, granular measurement. And, you know, to that point about Garcia, you know, he threw four innings, uh, six innings with four and runs and got a PQS three out of it in that outing. Of course, yesterday's was a PQS five. So the thing that I always noticed was that there was uh, very, very few PQS ones because uh, I presumed because as a pitcher was pitching that poorly uh, that his manager would take him out before he qualified. You had to think you had to have a five inning minimum or you just got an automatic zero. And so uh, there was uh, the distribution was skewed in that way as well. There was so very, very few PQS ones. It went zero, then two, three, four, five, and there was a skew, as you said, to the higher numbers as well. Yeah, that's exactly right. It was that component you're talking about that if you didn't throw five innings, you automatically got a PQS zero if you threw four and a third, four and two thirds or less. Uh, we've eliminated that. So that does do exactly what you're saying. It brings the PQS ones and even the twos you know, back into play more. The The most common score, I think, in the old system because of that was a PQS zero sort of by distribution. Um, but now it's, uh, you know, it kind of flattens out those you know, bad starts across the zeros, ones and twos. And is the change going to be made retroactive? Yes, we've uh, just yesterday or the day before, we uh, re-ran the PQS history on the site to apply the uh, PQS logs to the new scoring system so that if you pull up the 2015 or 2014 PQS log that now reflects the updated PQS metric. That's important because if you look at our daily matchups report and the matchup scores that we derive from the PQS uh, right now in April, we run those numbers off of the 2015 data because the sample size for this year isn't meaningful. We don't flip that over to use in-season data until somewhere like early May. So by have, by restating that PQS, essentially those matchup scores now are being driven off of the new PQS data too. So it's picking up the, you know, the additional granularity from that too, which is all a good thing. Moving along to injury news, and it wouldn't be a National League market watch this year without injury news. The Rockies put outfielder Charlie Blackman on the DL with turf toe. Turf toe always sounds funny to me, but it really isn't. It's a fairly uh, difficult injury. What's the story with Charlie Blackman? Yeah, it's pretty clear that he went on the DL because, you know, he was kind of dragging that leg around a little bit in the early going. I mean, he was 5 for 27 with one stolen base. I think he'd had a couple of days off, too. They were clearly already trying to sort of manage this situation, and I, I don't think it took more than a week and a half or so of trying to kind of nurse him through it and hope it would get better before they kind of came around to the conclusion that the only thing that was going to really make it get better was to shut him down for a couple of weeks. I guess he's got some history with this. Uh, he had a, t- a toe issue back in 2012, and you know the hope here is that they can give him a you know near minimum couple of week DL stint and kind of just nip this thing in the bud and get him back to you know being Charlie Blackman for the rest of the year without any further issues. But well, you know, we'll have to see how that goes. Got to believe it's going to be tough on him for stolen bases, even when he does come back. Uh, sore feet and stolen bases don't really mix that well. We can hope for a recovery. In the meantime, what are going to be the playing time effects in the Colorado outfield? 
yeah, we've had a game or two to see how this kind of cascades around. And what they appear to be doing is they shifted Gerardo Parra over to center field to cover for Blackman's uh, coverage there. Uh, they popped Ben Paulson out from first base to left field, which at least in Coors seems dicey. But he did do that, uh, I think it was 19 times in 2015. So he's got some experience out there. And they stuck Mark Reynolds at first base. That was against a right-handed pitcher. And then when a lefty pitches, I guess the plan is going to be instead of Paulson, they're going to go with Ryan Rayburn out there in left field, who, you know, is a sort of a lefty killer or utility man kind of guy. Uh, he's interesting, you know, in daily lineup situations in that he does have that track record against lefties, uh, you know, comes with a lifetime 152 PX versus left-handed pitching. He's already hit two home runs in Coors this year. So, you know, in situations where the Rockies are facing a southpaw at home over the next couple of weeks or maybe even beyond, you know, Rayburn is kind of interesting as a spot play. Beyond that, the options are pretty thin. Brandon Barnes has been the sort of fourth outfielder and waiting out there forever um, for a couple of years now at least. But, you know, he's got some interesting power and speed, but they, those just get overwhelmed by poor contact that repeatedly gets exposed at the big league level. So it's kind of hard to project anything changing there. Um, the other cascading effect out of this isn't, you know, uh, isn't playing time related, but in terms of uh, lineup impact, DJ Mayhew bumps back up to the top spot in the lineup, which is good for him in a number of levels, both in terms of uh, obviously getting more bats and more run scoring opportunities from the one hole, but also, especially in, in the National League, the difference between batting eighth, where he's been, where he was in the first week versus number one, is a you know is a lot of running opportunities. So obviously, you know, Mayhew's uh, a lot of his value is based on speed, and while Blackman is out, you know, he should get the uh, green white a little more often. So good news for Mayhew owners. In Los Angeles, the Dodgers activated Yasmani Grandel and Howie Kendrick from the DL, but put Scott Van Slyke onto the DL. A lot of DL moves in Los Angeles early this year. What are the playing time effects of these two moves? Maybe not as big as you think. Uh, Van Slyke's injuries have a couple of effects, but they're not major. Uh, Austin Barnes sticks around for now, um, but we have him losing a little bit of playing time. Trace Thompson gets... Uh, a little bit of a playing time bump in the outfield while Van Slyke is out. And he's done pretty well so far, so he might continue to carve out a little bit of playing time in the combined opportunity that's exposed from Van Slyke and Crawford being on the DL. Um, as far as Grandal's return, the uh, the idea that they kept the third catcher around kind of suggests that he's not fully ready to go yet. He didn't even play in his first game back. So... We're not bumping his playing time right back to sort of pre-injury levels just yet. Uh, A.J. Ellis still projects for about 25% of the catching playing time there in essentially a bad side of a platoon with Grandal. And Barnes is hanging around for now at 10%, but he'll probably disappear at some point. And the Kendrick recall, I, I guess he goes back to second base, but he could play some outfield as well. Yeah, there's, you know, everyone talks about the Cubs as being this sort of Swiss Army Knife team where they could put a bunch of guys in a bunch of different places. And the Dodgers kind of have some of that going on too. Uh, you know, kind of surprisingly, Chase Utley's off to a really good start. So, you know, he's kind of sticking a claim at second base, which might free up Kendrick to go do some other things. Obviously, you've got Kiki Hernandez there in that second base shortstop outfield mix too. So that's another guy who could be put in a number of places. Kendricks, they're paying him a lot of money. They resigned him fairly late in the offseason. You think they want to play him, but there are so many players on this team who we have projected for you know more than 10% playing time. I think we're up to 10 or 11 of them now. So you know the overall story is that 
you know, who's producing, who's healthy. You know, the Dodgers' playing time is going to be changing probably pretty literally week to week as we sort out, you know, where the trends are going there. So I would imagine, you know, you and Harold will be talking about this situation quite a bit over the coming months. I was just thinking the same thing. It's like one of those stories that just never goes away because of the the uh, tremendous amount of flux that goes into a roster when they are constantly churning guys through the DL and then trying to find the hot hand as well amongst a bunch of you know good players but no standout great players who seize the role and run with it. You mentioned Chase Utley's off to a pretty hot start, but you have to ask yourself, you know, what is he a hundred years old? How long is that going to keep going? Is sooner or later is he going to get hurt? There's a fair chance of that. Is he going to stop playing well? It looks like it's going to be uh, musical chairs all year in in the Dodgers uh, roster and lineup. So it could be that maybe the best bet is to just look somewhere else. Uh, But staying in Los Angeles, Ryan Bloomfield of BaseballHQ.com and Baseball HQ Radio looked at the Dodgers' rotation in playing time tomorrow in his roster analysis. And he looked first at right-hander Ross Stripling, who opened the year with seven scoreless innings versus San Francisco. Is he more highly recommended as a result? Yeah, that was a really good outing. He was actually, of course, you know, flirting with a no hitter and uh, you know got pulled by Dave Roberts without giving up a hit. But uh, you know there were a number of reasons for that. It was only a two to nothing game. He had walked a couple of guys, and uh, you know was obviously he's a recent Tommy John surgery recovery, so there were some uh, durability concerns there. So you, you can sort of understand why all of that happened. Uh, but you know he he's probably done enough already to earn himself a couple of more starts but i don't think his leash goes any further than that right now they have you know they, they have some other options there um and you know funny we were talking about the uh the pqs uh and that seven inning shutout only got him a pqs three on that outing which kind of just reinforces what we were talking about before about how we've sort of raised the standard for what a dominant start really looks like well he did strike out only four batters walked four batters that's always a fairly poor sign you want to see though that ratio be much higher than that uh you mentioned the dodgers have other options uh give us some names and where you think they stand right at the moment it's not that different from the offense you know it's going to be a question of who's healthy and productive at any given time and you know the answers may change you know every time through the rotation there there are some giant question marks like Hyungjin Ru who we haven't seen in you know more than a year now is you know still trying to rehab from the arm troubles that have bought, that cost him all of last year you know if he gets on the rehab and starts to show that he can carry some workload he's pretty clearly you know, one of the better options in this rotation. But, you know, there are a lot of questions about whether he can do that. It seems like every time he tries to ramp up his activity, he has another setback. So some open questions there. Uh, meanwhile, you know, speaking of the injury ward, Brandon Beachy is, a, you know, I don't know if he's a two- or three-time Tommy John guy at this point, but he's, you know, we're trying to work his way back. Mike Bolsinger was supposed to be the – top candidate for the fifth starter job entering spring training but he started the season on the DL but he's probably not that far away so he's a candidate then if you go down and look at Oklahoma City they have even more options all right fill me in yes so you know start with Zach Lee uh he's thrown 12 innings in Oklahoma City so far with one walk eight strikeouts and only two earned runs and you know he's healthier than all these other guys we're talking about so that probably makes him the next in line now just because he's actually stretched out in pitching let alone pitching well on top of that you know a little further down the road there's Julio Urias who is their top pitching prospect he's also in Oklahoma City but he's just 19 years old uh you know certainly a big part of their future plans maybe not so much their present but 
uh, in five innings down there, he's got nine Ks and no walks already, so he certainly seems like he's not going to take much of a learning curve at AAA. If he keeps that up for even a few more starts, you'll wonder if L.A. might rethink those plans. But he might be innings limited. He's someone who you could see you know, maybe later in this season as part of a August or September push if they manage his workload in the minors for a couple of more months. Could even be a situation where they try to make him a you know multi-inning relief weapon or something like that later in the season. But, you know, there's, you know, much like we said with the offense, there's a lot of moving parts here and only five openings in the rotation. So at any given time, we'll see which of these, you know, 8, 9, 10, 11 guys we're talking about are constituting the working five. Ray, thanks very much for pinch hitting for Nick this week. I'm going to give you a PQF five a podcast quality fill in five for that performance really do appreciate it and we'll talk to you again during the season i'm sure absolutely it's always a pleasure patrick call anytime ray murphy is the general manager for administration at baseballhq.com and one of the speculator columnists at the site as well now let's move over to the american league and baseballhq.com director of news and analysis jock thompson also a speculator columnist as well jock welcome back to the show Hi, PD. I guess we should start in Minnesota. Everybody in uh, fantasy baseball in most formats is looking for saves. Glenn Perkins has been sent back to the disabled list. This time he has a strain in the left shoulder. Don't like those shoulder injuries at the best of times for pitchers, especially closers. Looks like Kevin Jepsen is next in line. Uh, You and I talked about this briefly last week, but this whole deal has really blown up. Uh, Doug Dennis in his uh, bullpens column and Alex Becky, who lives in Minneapolis, a huge Twins fan, in playing time today, he went into some detail on the situation in Minnesota. So, Jepson, we know, is going to get first call, but can he hold on to the job? And if not, what's next? Yeah, we did touch on this last week. Uh, uh, Perkins' velocity had been down this spring in his first two starts. He normally throws 93-94. He was throwing 91. It wasn't very effective. So the DL... uh, uh, assignment didn't surprise anybody and neither uh has Jepson getting the first shot he logged 15 saves in 2015 um, um, while both pitching both for the Rays and the Twins um, on the other hand if you look at Jepson's underlying stats uh, um, he had a, uh, a 4.03 expected ERA coupled with a 2.33 ERA which tells you there's a lot wrong in that performance uh I've watched Jepson for a long time in Anaheim, and at times he's looked very good. At times he's looked very bad. He he really has relief pitcher volatility. You never quite know what you're going to get from month to month with him. It's possible he could hold on to this job and get another you know 15 saves this year. Uh, on the other hand, uh, he hasn't pitched well uh, early on, and and it's possible he may lose it as well. I wouldn't be real comfortable relying on him if I were a fantasy owner. Well, supposing he doesn't hold on, I mean, we, we can't expect Perkins to come back. If he does, uh, he'll probably get the job back, would he not? Yeah, um, it's like Doug Dennis said in his, um, in his piece. Uh, that Perkins has some red flags going on. His velocity has gone down a little bit, um, and, and so is his strikeout rate. On the other hand, uh, his first pitch strikes are still good. His swinging strikes are still good. He is still the most skilled reliever in that bullpen. So if Jepson, er, I'm sorry, if Perkins comes back, and Minnesota right now is saying that he will he will uh, take over that closer role once again. And we talked about Trevor May. Uh, how sanguine are you about his potential? Yeah, I mean, we, I think you and I both like Trevor May's strikeout uh, rate and uh, the possibility that he might even ramp things up uh, moving from um, starting pitching to relieving. Um, on the other hand, he struggled a little bit early on. I know it's a small sample. So this is a very fluid situation. 
I like Trevor May's uh, strikeout rate. He's got 11 strikeouts already in six innings, which is outstanding, but he's also walked three guys. That translates to a 4.5 walks per nine, and that's just not going to get the job done for most managers because the the walks will just kill you. His whip for the young season is 142. Uh, historically, it hasn't been quite that bad, but it also hasn't been you know world beating either. 177 back in 2014, 133 last year in uh, in 48 games. Trevor May has a lot of skills for getting strikeouts, but those walks could kill him and any chance he has of getting that closer role and running with it. Yeah, exactly. He's got a lot to prove. Uh, and again, he, he also has to get the opportunity. Uh, uh, Perkins is going to have to stay hurt and Jepson's going to have to blow up before he gets that chance. Mike Shears noted Ryan Presley might be a long shot flyer in playing time today uh, based on his spring performance. He struck out 17 in 13 innings, did some pretty good work in the high minors, but it's just a long shot at this stage, I'm going to guess. Might be worth a stash, though. Yeah, it really is. If you have a deep league, I'm sure, put add Presley to that list. But uh, again, Presley has a lot to prove at the MLB level in spite of what he did in AAA. He did post a 9.4 dom in AAA in 2014, like you said, but he still has to do it in the majors. The other big story in Minneapolis, of course, is the uh, dire straits involving this offense. They can't seem to score runs. They can't put together any hits. It's been really terrible. They're 0-9 and, and, and full value for it. I've uh, watched a few of the Minnesota games, and they just can't do anything on offense. And now they've, they've taken a big step forward by signing David Murphy to a minor league deal. Boy, it doesn't seem like... Uh, this is this is going to be a, a really good addition. Uh, David Murphy will get into the games pretty early, I'm going to guess, after he gets back in shape. What's going to happen here overall? This Minnesota team looks bad. Yeah, well, normally I'd say it's too early to panic, but we're talking about a team that's that's lost their first nine games, and it's funny, I was listening to a, uh, a radio blog this morning over at, uh, at ESPN, and uh, the point was made that uh, um, only a couple of teams have gone 0-6 and still made the playoffs in uh, in in baseball history, nobody has gone 0-9 and made the playoffs. So their their assumption from that is that the twin season is over. Now, I'm not going to go that far, but uh, 0-9 is a tough way to go. And, and, and you, you said a mouthful. They've scored all of 14 runs in their first nine games. And their biggest problem is this is a team that's striking out a ton. They're, they're third in AL strikeouts. They're not walking a lot. One of the reasons they signed Murphy is Murphy makes decent contact. He's always... Uh, put his contact rate in the in the low mid 80s um, I'm not sure how much he's going to add to them but he's only going to be in the minors uh, it's clear uh, for as long as it takes him to get in game shape mode um, what the twins will do at that point is anyone's guess uh, it's probably going to depend on the next three to six games but none of their hitters aside from um, two, 2015 flop Joe Maurer is hitting the ball um, aside from Maurer and uh, I think Edwin Nunez all of their regulars with 10, 10 at-bats or more are hitting well below 200. Um, Byron Buxton uh, has uh, zero walks and 13 strikeouts already. Eddie Rosario, one walk, 10 strikeouts. Um, D.H. Byung-Ho Park, two walks, 13 strikeouts. So you see what the problem is. Um, even Miguel Sano, um, he's walking a little bit, but he has 15 strikeouts and he hasn't hit a home run. He may be at the least risk just because of his walks and because, because he has that home run potential. Um, I'm not sure that Minnesota is going to make a scapegoat out of one of the names I just mentioned immediately. And when I say that, I mean over the next week. Um, I, it, it would still look like a panic mood. Um, I, I think what they'll do when Murphy's ready is they'll they'll maybe demote uh, one of the uh, bench players uh, um, 
basically uh, you've got Oswaldo Arcia and Max Kepler not getting a lot of playing time. They need to get playing time. One of them is going to get demoted. On the other hand, by the end of April, if some of these names don't start performing, um, I, I could see I could see someone like Buxton or Rosario or or even Park uh, getting demoted. Uh, it's a tough situation in Minnesota right now. Something else to think about, I think, if you happen to be in an only league with some twins on your roster and you lose them with no compensation if they get traded out of the league, if this continues much longer, the twins are going to have to throw in the towel and start thinking about what they're doing for the future, which could portend some of their players leaving the club. Uh, Trevor Plouffe might draw some interest. I'm just thinking, of course, they're going to hang on to the Sanos and the other young guys, but anybody who's got a bit of a track record in Minnesota could be not long for the club. Even if they could find a taker for Joe Maurer, uh, he's not going to go back behind the plate, but you know, he's a decent on-base percentage guy. And by the way, uh, Jock, you mentioned that uh, Minnesota's in the, way up near the top of the strikeouts. You know who's leading the American League in strikeouts as an offense? Yeah, you know, I saw it a minute ago, but I, I wasn't sure. Uh, was it Toronto? No, it's Houston and then Toronto. Just both, uh, both of them are at 100 or higher and they're both doing pretty well so maybe there's a not necessarily a connection between striking out a lot as a team if as long as you're hitting as a team and unfortunately minnesota's striking out a lot and not hitting as a team yeah unfortunately i think toronto and houston are probably near the top in home runs too whereas as minnesota is next to the bottom uh, ahead of only my angels so um uh i think there is <laughs> there's something to be said for that yeah if you can hit lots of home runs and certainly houston and toronto are both doing that uh, and and probably figure to keep doing that then uh, you can get away with a lot of striking out as i said uh, in the american league west bad news for my tout wars team shin su chu strained a calf he'll be out of action for four to six weeks at least probably not stealing a lot of bases when he gets back because of a sore leg as expected this triggered all kinds of action the big name being nomar mazara a mega prospect and boy did he have a terrific first week playing almost every day in the rangers outfield you covered this rod trusdell covered it in playing time today what can you tell us about Nomar Mazar, short-term, long-term? Well, he did really well in the low minors a couple of years ago, and he was rushed up to double-A and then triple-A last year at the age of 20. Uh, he had a good, not great consolidation year last year, as, as I thought he would. Uh, I thought he would spend some time there. But at least now, at first glance, these first 20 at-bats, he's got eight hits, and he looks ready to play. Now, things could change uh, as ML pitchers adjust. Uh, but were I the owner of Texas outfielders and DHs right now, I'd be shaving my playing time estimates going forward because if Mazzara is still producing at this level when Chu returns, all of the Lino to Shields, Ian Desmond, and Mitch Moreland could be losing at-bats. Uh, um, now, one of the, the names I covered was DeShield, since he's been hyped by a lot of folks to start the season after his good last year. But this is a guy who doesn't play great defense in center field. Um, his plate skills are a little bit suspect. Um, I, and, and he's right-handed. I would actually put his playing time more at risk than, than any of these names. Uh, I still think he's going to steal 20, 25 bases this year. But you could see him losing a lot of at-bats as the season goes on. Yeah, I like that call, Jock. I think that the possibility is he steals 25 bases as a uh, pinch runner more than anything else and has very little else to offer. And uh, depending on your format of your league, uh, it's difficult to see sometimes. 25 bags looks nice, but if there's nothing beside it except an empty batting average, I don't know about that. I'm also uh, curious about Ian Desmond. Uh, they, he hasn't done much yet. I know they're waiting for him to, to recover some of this batting prowess that he showed with the Nationals a couple of years ago and in the second half last 
last year. But uh, yeah, if I, if I was all of these guys, I'd be a little bit worried. At at first, you would have thought, boy, they they look at Shin Su Chu going down. They think, oh, good, more playing time for me. Then Mazara comes up and starts battling uh, the lights out, and all of a sudden, all of these guys must be looking over their shoulders. Yeah, it's kind of fascinating. Um, I I think Moreland's still going to get the strong side of a of a platoon, given that he's a left-handed hitter. But even Moreland, I think he's been injured a lot in recent years up till last year, so you got to be a little bit concerned about about him. But you're right, the Shields and Desmond and Moreland, they all look like part-timers. And when you think about what's going on with Mazzara, this isn't even considering what might transpire with the minor league process of name, or progress of names like Joey Gallo and, uh, and Lewis Brinson, both of whom were off the torrid starts at AAA and AA. None of the regulars or semi-regulars that I've mentioned can hold a candle to these minor leaguers. If these guys come fast and Mazzara is hitting, this is just the beginning of a wave in Texas. You know, I think a lot of that, Jock, is going to depend on how well the Rangers are doing in the race. I think they see themselves as a playoff team. I think they see themselves as a divisional winner in a fairly weak division. And if that's the case, if they're being competitive, I I would be surprised if they would roll the dice on, especially on Gallo, given how much he strikes out. Uh, it doesn't seem like the problem in Texas is going to be batting, even if Gallo and Brinson stay in the minor leagues. I think their problem is going to be pitching in the long run, and, and um, I'd be more inclined to think that one or more of those guys could find his way out of town as the Texas uh, Rangers try to shore up their rotation by trade. What do you think? Yeah, these are all good points, and, and the bottom line is um, I think there's change coming to Texas one way or another, as you, as you so well just noted. Staying in the American League West, there's an interesting situation developing at the DH spot in Houston where Evan Gaddis has just returned from the DL. Uh, the dilemma here is the same as it was last year. I guess Preston Tucker has been hitting right-handers pretty well to start the season, but he's a terrible fielder. He's got nowhere else to play except DH, and uh, nobody's going to steal any at-bats right now from Colby Rasmus, who's torching the ball. So well, how does the Gaddis-Tucker thing sort itself out? Well, it's interesting. Gattis started the first game uh, that he came back in, but then he found himself on the bench for Tucker. Tucker's had a hot start. Um, he's left-handed. Uh, his uh, he's. I personally think he's probably as good as Gattis is hitting right-handers. He may not have quite the power um, that Gattis does, uh, but he walks a little bit more. Gattis is... Uh, pitch selection kind of hurts him a little bit. But what really makes this situation interesting to me is is Houston's uh, intent to, to give Gaddis some reps at the catcher spot, which they first discussed this winter, and they've now reiterated after his return from the DL. If Gaddis gets five games in at catcher, obviously his bat moves him into the top five or ten names at this position because it's really weak right now. So this is an interesting situation to keep an eye on in Houston. It is, and uh, Gaddis is no uh, Johnny Bench back there or, or uh, Yogi Berra as far as the as far as the glove, but he can hit. And if they want maybe to have Tucker and Gaddis in the lineup at the expense of one of the outfielders, one of the other outfielders on the roster, especially if Colby Rasmus cools off, which you have to believe, given the amount of times he strikes out, is is a possibility. There could be a chance that if. You have Evan Gaddis on your roster as a DH only, which he was coming into this year in most league formats. You could pick up some catcher eligibility, which is a huge plus. Yeah, Gaddis hit uh, 27 homers, and he drove in uh, 87 runs last year. He's He'd be hitting in a terrific lineup. Uh, I think Houston's another team where pitching, or at least the bottom end of that rotation, is going to be the problem, and the offense just isn't. 
And I guess so there's a possibility of some of their young talent also being traded as well. Uh, Boston's having some upheaval. We saw Pablo Sandoval going on the DL, and really uh, some of the news I saw said that basically they told him he's not coming back till he you know, hits Jenny Craig and gets himself sorted out, and they demoted Rosny Castillo as well. This sounds like good news for Brock Holt owners, uh, who should see plenty of time at third base and outfielder Brock Holt should. Steve Nickrand wrote about this. Chris Olson wrote about this uh, in the past week. Yeah, um, it's it's fascinating, um, and and we talked about it in in previous week. Holt is the big winner. He's now, for all intents and purposes, a regular, at least barring a few more roster moves from uh, from the Red Sox, and he has decent plate sc- skills to go along with his versatility. Um, Nick Rand obviously isn't as high on him as as we are longer term. Um, he's hitting the ball um, the ball hard right now, um, and his fly his fly balls are leaving the park. But he has a long history of being a ground ball hitter with poor power skills, as, as Stephen mentions. Um, he's going to hit 270, 280, but if he gets off to a hot start and uh, and he gets uh, overpriced or, or his value gets overinflated in your league, he would be an interesting uh, uh, name to trade. Big votes of confidence here for Jackie Bradley Jr. and Travis Shaw. Yeah, absolutely. They also become regulars. Uh, it's interesting because it's something we're going to talk uh, next about. The Red Sox are about to go to a three-catcher situation. And uh, this leaves very few reserves on the uh, on uh, on the bench. Uh, Bradley was already a regular in uh, in uh, center field uh, simply because Rusny Castillo had disappointed, and Shaw would take over Sandoval's position. So both are near everyday starters until further notice. Uh, and even Chris Young gets a little bit of a bump as the only regular outfield off the bench. I know some people gambled on Josh Rutledge, who looked okay in Colorado over the last couple of years, but not great. He finally found his way to Boston. Uh, does he look like he has a path to playing time? No, it looks like to me he's just occupying space as the uh, the infield utility along with Holt. If uh, if um, Holt goes back to that job, you know Rutledge could probably get demoted again. I wouldn't be investing in Rutledge right now. Yeah, it's nice for for any team to have a uh, an infield replacement type guy who can play four or five positions. Your your Ben Zobris and back in the day Tony Phillips, guys like that because it means you don't have to carry a weak player as your utility guy. You can use that that all arounder to 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 spell everybody a game here and a game there. And uh, speaking of Boston, Blake Swihart has come under fire. The young catcher there hasn't been too uh, terrific with the leather either. And all of a sudden it looks like they're going to promote Christian Vasquez, their top catching prospect, and maybe he's going to see some playing time. And the Red Sox have Ryan Hannigan. They can't really carry three catchers, can they? Yeah, it's kind of interesting. Boston's starting pitching hasn't been great, though. It, it's I've, I haven't watched them that closely. It sounds like their concerns uh, about Swihart are legitimate. My guess is that they're going to hedge their bets for a little while. I mean, Vasquez is still coming back from um, um, surgery, and uh, um, they still want to see if he's healthy and can can handle it offensively. If if he's throwing good and 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 uh, everything works out over the short term, he'll become the primary eventually. With Swihart going back down to the minors to uh, to get some more instruction, uh, I think uh, they're hedging their bets. Um, I like Vasquez a little bit. Um, I, I mean, admittedly, the catching situation is weak throughout MLB. Um, he went six for 13 with seven walks uh, through the first five games of his uh, rehab assignment. Um, this is something that Matt, Matt Dodge pointed out in uh, his playing time today. So um, if you're if you're looking uh, right now for a number two catcher in deep leagues, I would definitely go take a shot at Vasquez. Sounds good. Boy, a a busy week in the American League, a busy week in baseball all around, and we do appreciate that you take the time to come and help us out on the American League. We'll talk to you again next week. Sure thing, PD.
Jock Thompson is the Director of News and Analysis at BaseballHQ.com and our man on the American League beat here at Baseball HQ Radio. Regular commentaries are next. You are listening to Baseball HQ Radio. First of all, I want you to know that this honor that was brought upon me here could not have happened without the great work and the advice and guidance that I've had from three of the most wonderful people that I know. And if either of them weren't here today, I know that this day could not be complete. But they're all here, and I just hope you don't mind if I just pay a, a word of thanks and a, a tribute to my advisor and a wonderful friend, a man who I considered a father, Mr. Branch Rickey. And my mother, who taught me so much of the important things early in life, I appreciate no end. My mother, Mrs. Robinson. And, and, and lastly, ladies and gentlemen, my wife, who has been such a wonderful inspiration to me, and the person who has guided and advised me throughout our entire marriage. I, I couldn't have been here today without her help. And then I, in sitting down, I must thank the baseball writers. I never thought at all that I would have this wonderful honor coming to me so early in my lifetime. And to have the writers to elect me on the first time is a thrill that I shall never forget. We have been up in cloud nine since the election. I don't ever think I'll come down. But I want to thank all of the people throughout this country who were just so wonderful during those trying days. I appreciate it no end. It's the greatest honor any person could have. And I only hope that I'll be able to live up to this tremendously fine honor. It's, it's something that I think those of us who are fortunate again must use in order to help others because it's such a tremendous honor that we should be able to go out and do things to help. I'm just grateful, and I'm sorry it's taking so long, but I just wanted you to know I appreciate it so much. Thank you. Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Patrick Davitt here. We have our commentaries coming up, but first, let me tell you a few words about BaseballHQ.com and why I'm always calling it the best fantasy baseball website in the business. It's because BaseballHQ.com is ready to keep you ahead of the game all season long with content across a wide range of great information. This week, in the GM's office, Brent Hershey talks about getting the best player in any deal. Brian Rudd's Facts and Flukes Performance Validation column looks at Christian Yelich, John Jaso, Jeremy Hellickson, and other players. And Playing Time Today news coverage looks at the Twins' save situation, as you heard earlier, Pablo Sandoval's pending rehab stint at Jenny Craig, Tommy John surgery for St. Louis pitcher Marco Gonzalez, and much more. All during the season, BaseballHQ.com has daily matchups reports, a daily fantasy dashboard, team coverage, minor league scouting, and of course the projections and other roster management tools that you can use to dominate your league and daily fantasy baseball. It's all only at the website with fantasy baseball intelligence for winners, BaseballHQ.com. Now it's time for those regular Friday commentaries. Coming up, we have playing time, frequent flyers, pitcher matchup reports, and master notes. And leading off, it's the Minor League Minute. And here with a report on Detroit right-handed pitching prospect Michael Fulmer is BaseballHQ.com Minor Leagues analyst Rob Gordon. We are a little more than a week into the 2016 season, and already the Detroit Tigers pitching staff is starting to look a bit shaky. 
The team had high hopes that longtime staff ace Justin Verlander had turned things around last year and that he would anchor a revamped starting rotation. Unfortunately, the injury bug hit the Tigers this spring, with Annabelle Sanchez and Daniel Norris both missing extended action. Verlander and number 4 starter Mike Pelfrey have both had rough starts to the season, and newly acquired closer Francisco Rodriguez blew his first save opportunity of the year while barely breaking 90 miles an hour with his fastball. Given the instability of the Tigers' pitching staff over the last several seasons, it's worth keeping an eye on top prospect Michael Fulmer. Fulmer came over from the Mets in the Cespedes deal last year and comes after hitters with a plus mid-90s fastball that he locates well down in the zone. He backs up the heater with a plus hard slider and an average curveball. Last year, Fulmer went 10-3 with a 2.24 ERA between high A and double A, striking out more than a batter an inning while walking just 30 hitters and 124 innings pitched. The Tigers don't have a strong track record of thinking outside the box, but they still have questions both in their rotation and their pen, and it isn't hard to imagine a scenario where they need Fulmer to step in. Long-term, his fastball-slider combination and ability to throw strikes make him a potential lights-out closer or a solid mid-rotation starter. Those in AL-only format should keep a close eye on Michael Fulmer and be ready to pounce once he is called up. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Baseball HQ Minor League Analyst Rob Gordon. Another way BaseballHQ.com subscribers get the winner's edge is with comprehensive coverage of the minor leagues. All season long, the BaseballHQ.com scouting team has reports and updates on the top prospects, organizational moves, daily call-ups, and everything you need to keep tabs on rising stars. This week, our extensive prospect coverage includes those daily call-ups reports, covering prospects like Colorado catcher Dustin Garneau, Minnesota left-hander Taylor Roberts, Pittsburgh right-hander A.J. Shugel, and other call-ups. Not a lot there so far this week, but keep checking, and the BaseballHQ.com scouting staff is going to turn up some gems for you. And our watch list report. And in our column called The Eyes Have It, BaseballHQ.com scout Chris Blessing takes in games with some San Francisco prospects of note, right-handed power pitcher Phil Bickford, shortstop Lucius Fox, and second baseman Jalen Miller. If you need to know your prospects to stay competitive in your leagues, BaseballHQ.com has you covered. Now it's time for our Playing Time segment, where we look at situations that could mean players getting more playing time or losing at-bats or innings. In this week's edition, we'll look at speculating on saves in Minnesota, while Darren Ruff's playing time takes a positive turn. Here to tell you more about it, BaseballHQ.com analyst Ryan Bloomfield. Minnesota's closer situation felt a shock this week as Glenn Perkins hit the DL with a shoulder strain in his pitching shoulder. Shoulder injuries are typically the worst for pitchers, and Perkins is no stranger to health issues. This looks to be an extended absence. Kevin Jepson will step in as the new closer in Minnesota, but our skills suggest he might not be the best option in the Twins' bullpen. Jepson posted an impressive 2.33 ERA last season, but it came with little underlying skill support. Jepson's expected ERA, which is a more skills-based measure of how he actually pitched, sat above 4.0 thanks to a mediocre 2.2 strikeout-to-walk ratio. Jepson's first pitch strike rate, which is a solid indicator of control or lack of control, has been below average in five of the last six seasons, so if the skills are any indication, Jepson's stay as the team's closer may not last long. 
While the role is important, fantasy owners may want to speculate on Trevor May instead, as he's the consensus backup to Jepsen and owns much more impressive skills. May is a converted starter who shifted to the bullpen in the second half of 2015 and just thrived. He basically ditched his slider and went with a fastball-heavy approach in the bullpen, and it worked wonders. May put up a 10.2 strikeouts per nine in the second half last season with a 4.9 strikeout-to-walk ratio. His 143 base performance value or BPV over that time sums it up well. May has closer-worthy skills. He's just 26 with solid prospect pedigree, so check to see if Trevor May is available as he has the skills to thrive as Minnesota's closer if he gets a shot. On the NL side this week, we head to Philly, where BaseballHQ.com columnist Greg Pyron looked at Darren Ruff's potential stab at more playing time in the Phillies outfield. Ruff spent some time in left field last season with 22 games played, but he's mostly been pegged as a first baseman this spring. With Ryan Howard getting the majority of reps against right-handed pitching at first base, Ruff's potential shift to the outfield may get him the at-bats that he needs to potentially break out in 2016. Ruff has consistently posted strong raw power metrics over the past few seasons, but playing time has been an issue as 268 at-bats were a career high for him last season. Ruff made gains cutting down on the strikeouts last year as he bumped his contact rate up from 69% in 2014 to 74% last season. Ruff's still a batting average liability, but the power is very real given his 139 career expected power index, and we could easily see over 20 home runs from Ruff if he can steal some at-bats in the outfield. Philly obviously wants to get Ruff's at-bat bat in the lineup, which suddenly makes him a strong power speculation for fantasy owners in 2016. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Ryan Bloomfield with BaseballHQ.com. Ryan Bloomfield is an analyst at BaseballHQ.com and has his playing time commentary here at the Baseball HQ Radio podcast every week. Now it's time for Frequent Flyers, where we apply BaseballHQ.com tools to pick out players on whom you might want to take a flyer, because they could be available in your free agent pool, and they have the potential to deliver big returns. This week's Frequent Flyers are Malik Smith and Vincent Velasquez. You've heard plenty about him. He's only in about 66% of the big public leagues. Here to tell you more about both of them is BaseballHQ.com analyst Alex Becky. It's a brave new world for Atlanta's Malik Smith, who was called up to replace the injured Ender Inciarte as the Braves deal not only with Inciarte's injury, but also Hector Oliveira's arrest. In this week's edition for Good Flyers, we'll profile two players who could provide excellent short-term value, Malik Smith and an emerging Phillies ace who struck out 16 batters in nine innings of work. But first, let's talk about Malik Smith, who made his Major League debut on April 11th against the Washington Nationals and was immediately inserted into the Braves' leadoff spot. With 55 steals through two levels of the minors in 2015 and 88 steals in 2014, Malik Smith has a reputation for speed. In fact, the 2016 baseball forecaster claims that Malik Smith has some of the best speed in the minors. Indeed, Malik Smith's 55 steals ranked fifth among all minor league players in 2015. Wouldn't that compare favorably to Billy Hamilton's 57 steals in 2015? Absolutely. Still, the minor league forecaster does say that Malik Smith has 80 grade speed, and BaseballHQ.com's statistically scouted speed index, which measures speed without relying on stolen bases, shows that Smith's speed is projected to be 135 in 2016, or approximately 35% higher than the average major league player. 
Best of all, Malik Smith has shown the ability to consistently get on base, batting 306 in 2015 with a 373 on base average and a 760 OPS. Even though Enciarte's left hamstring strain may not keep him out for long, Hector Oliveira's arrest may result in additional playing time for Malik Smith Once, since Oliveira has been placed on leave by Major League Baseball and is out indefinitely. Just remember that Malik Smith, like all of our frequent flyers, are long shots who may be worth a flyer if they're available in your league. If Malik Smith is available, grab him now. He may be a sneaky source of stolen bases with both A.J. Pollock and Ben Revere currently out. In any case, Malik Smith is going to be exciting to watch. And boy, as a baseball fan, it's really exciting to see what 23-year-old Vince Velasquez has accomplished his first two starts of the 2016 season. He's been dominant, striking out 25 in 15 innings pitched. Not to mention, Velasquez has not allowed any earned runs in 2016. None. Zero. Nada. Not bad for a pitcher with a 306 or 20th round ADP. Given his first two outings against the Mets and Padres, Vince Velasquez is obviously worth a flyer if he's available in your league. But is he worth more? Let's look at the numbers. After skipping AAA entirely, Vince Velasquez, pitching for the Houston Astros in 2015, posted a 1-1 record with a 4.37 ERA as both a starter and a reliever. However, there's a huge difference between his current 0 ERA and his 4.37 ERA last season. So what should we expect for the balance of the 2016 season? BaseballHQ.com is projecting a 3.48 XERA for Vince Velasquez in 2016. That's pretty good, but keep in mind the 3.48 XERA also spells regression from his current 0 ERA. Do those factors mean it might be time to test the market if you own Vince Velasquez? Maybe. His 133 base performance value, so far, is 47 points higher than his 86 BPV in 2015. More importantly, Vince Velasquez has never pitched more than 125 innings in any professional season. Remember, he's already thrown 15 innings in his first two games, averaging more than 7 innings per start. At that pace, he would reach his career high for innings pitched by the All-Star break. We're not saying that you need to trade him, but we are saying that his value is higher than expected right now. In other words, it may be a great time to buy low and sell high on both Malik Smith and Vince Velasquez, our frequent flyers for this week. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Alex Becky of BaseballHQ.com. Alex Becky is an analyst at BaseballHQ.com and has our frequent flyers comment here on Baseball HQ Radio every week. Now it's time for Pitcher Matchups Report for the weekend. Here with a look at Giovanni Gallardo of Baltimore facing Colby Lewis of Texas, as well as Bud Norris of Atlanta facing Tom Kaler of Miami, and more weekend matchups. BaseballHQ.com Pitching Matchups Analyst Greg Fishwick. Dear listeners, I regret to inform you that you are entering a weekend wasteland for starting pitchers. Of the 60 starters this weekend, 35 have negative matchup ratings. The American League has no starting pitchers with matchup ratings above one. And the National League has only Jake Arrieta's weekend high of 125. That's right, not one starting pitcher has a matchup rating in the recommended range this weekend. 
we're still relying on 2015 performance indicators for matchup ratings in April, which means we're not yet incorporating the small samples of early season masterpieces. So let's look at some of the worst starting pitcher combinations and at least help you set up your hitters for productive weekends, making mincemeat out of easy prey. The double whammy of double negatives rains down on 11 teams this weekend. The American League has five teams sending out a pair of pitchers with matchup ratings that begin with a minus sign, and the National League has six. Even normally pitcher-friendly PNC Park in Pittsburgh may become a hitter's heaven this weekend when the Milwaukee Brewers come calling on the Pirates, as that's the only pairing of opponents with all four starters having negative numbers for their matchup ratings. Let's look at the worst one-two punches in each league, both of which show combined matchup ratings worse than minus three. In the American League, the fast-starting Baltimore Orioles may be headed for a brick wall this weekend. On Saturday, they bring innings eater Giovanni Gallardo, with a matchup rating of minus 146, into Texas to face the Rangers' Colby Lewis, who has a matchup rating of minus 020. Gallardo has a pair of PQS 2s in his first two starts and is projected for an ERA above 4, a whip of 1-4, and a BPV of 60. Lewis isn't much more of a target, with PQS scores of 0 and 4 in his first two outings, expected ERAs of 4.47 and 4.49 in the past two years, and pans in his reviews by Greg Pyron in The Forecaster and Dave Adler in Facts and Flukes. Load your lineups against both of these guys if you can. On Sunday, the O's send rookie Mike Wright into the fray with a matchup rating of minus 167. Wright has as many PQS points as he has starts this season. One. He's projected for an ERA of nearly five and a whip of almost one five, which should result in a roto value of minus $10. The Rangers counter with Derek Holland, who has a matchup rating of minus 018. Holland has a bit better record than expected so far this season, putting up PQS scores of 2 and 3 in his two starts. He's projected for an ERA below 4 and a whip below 1-3 with a base performance value of 76. You could take a chance on him if you're feeling lucky, but you can't go wrong against Wright. In the National League, the Braves will get their first look at downsized Marlins Park in Miami. The two Atlanta starters have combined matchup ratings of minus 360. On Saturday, Atlanta's once promising Bud Norris puts up a matchup rating of minus 105 against Miami's Tom Kohler and his matchup rating of minus 005. Norris has faced Washington in both his starts this season, logging PQS scores of 3 and 0. He's projected for an ERA just over 4 with a whip of 142 and a roto value of minus $7. Kohler put up PQS3 in his lone start this season, also against Washington. He has a projected ERA right around 440, along with a whip of 146 and a roto value of minus $9. Atlanta's anemic offense, 27th in the early going, and Kohler's decent home numbers make him a risk-reward pick if you need one. On Sunday, the Braves send out newly acquired Yolis Chassin, who has a matchup rating of minus 255, against Jared Cosart and his matchup rating of minus 045. 
Chassin surprised with a PQS4 in his debut for Atlanta versus Washington, but his velocity was only 89 and his projected dom rate is barely 6 with a control rate over 3. That's not a good combination for him, but should help Miami's hitters. Cosart has a history of well below average control, dominance, and command ratios that contribute to a projected BPV in the mid-teens. Again, not a good combination for him, but one that could make even Atlanta hitters happy. So all in all, load your lineups with Orioles, Rangers, Marlins, and even Braves this weekend. Only if you're feeling lucky would you want to take a chance on Holland or Kohler, but by all means, avoid Gallardo, Lewis, Wright, Chassin, and Cosart. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Greg Fishwick of BaseballHQ.com. Greg Fishwick is a pitcher matchups analyst at BaseballHQ.com and here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. Now it's time for Master Notes, a weekly discussion about baseball and fantasy baseball. This week, I'd like to talk about arbitraging games played and a hidden hero behind the Jackie Robinson story. Talk about your climate deniers. The schedulers at Major League Baseball headquarters this year seemed to forget about the weather when they scheduled a bunch of early games in cities where folks were still scraping the frost off their windshields and roasting their chestnuts by the open fire. In the first week of action, six games were postponed, and a bunch were played by guys who looked like they were planning on mushing teams in the Iditarod dog sled race. I'm not sure, but I thought I saw one outfielder going to the corner wearing skates and looking for a hit from the defenseman. Now, I'm not going to call for a scheduling system that has all the early season games in cities with warm spring temperatures or indoor stadiums. It makes sense on the surface, but it also penalizes those cities that would lose more valuable summer dates, especially if the logic were continued to require more warm weather locales for September as well. Nor will I point out that the real problem is that the season is just too long, and that maybe day-night doubleheaders every Saturday would cut more than three weeks out of the season and allow it to start a week later and end two weeks earlier and maybe get the World Series finished before, say, Halloween. The real reason I bring up this ridiculous situation is that it prompted me to see a possible tactical advantage, the discrepancies in games played. Here's what I mean. Because of off days and those postponements, Cleveland, through Tuesday of this week, had played only five games. The Yankees, Tigers, National, and Marlins had played six. By contrast, Texas and Oakland had both played nine games, and ten other teams, mostly warm weather or dome clubs, had eight. To me, as I said, this fairly screams arbitrage opportunity, and it's a louder voice than the regular ones I hear in my head. If a fantasy owner could have done a deal trading two athletics and or rangers position players for a couple of Indians of roughly equal talent, he would have picked up eight extra games from now to the end of the season. That's 35 free plate appearances. This got me thinking about the longer season and whether such opportunities exist. After half a day of Googling, I could not find a downloadable Major League Baseball schedule, so I looked at last year's slate, and sure enough, arbitrage opportunities seemed to pop up all year long. For example, as of May 1st of last year, the White Sox had 142 games left to play. Seven teams had four fewer, just 138. On June 1st, the Royals had 114 games left, while three teams had five fewer at 109. On July 1st, the Royals had 87 games left, while two teams were down to 81, a six-game difference. 
On August 1st, four teams had 60 games left, while eight had only 57. And on September 1st, two teams had 32 games left, while six had 29. If an owner could have made even one even-talent games-played arbitrage swap on each of these dates, he would have picked up 21 extra games, which, after you do some ciphering using league averages, is a couple or three extra home runs, 10 or 11 extra RBIs and runs scored, maybe even a stolen bag or two. And, of course, many seasons in fantasy baseball have been won by those margins or less. The bottom line is this. When you're making deals this year, keep a sharp eye on that games-played number. There's opportunity there, I tell you. And now for something completely different. Today is April 15th, tax day in the United States. Here in Canada, we get till the end of the month. More importantly for our purposes, however, it's the 69th anniversary of the day Jackie Robinson broke the color line in Major League Baseball. Enough has been written and said about Robinson and his role in history. But I like reading the story, and this year I learned about a hidden hero named Clyde Sukaforth, who played an important role in Robinson's story and in a few other stories in baseball's history. Clyde Sukaforth was a baseball-obsessed kid from Maine. He worked his way up to the big leagues and a respectable, if unremarkable, 10-year career as a backup catcher with the Cincinnati Reds and Brooklyn Dodgers. When he realized his playing career was ending, he became a manager in the Dodger organization and quickly moved up till he was managing the top team in their system, the AAA Montreal Royals. In 1943, General Manager Branch Rickey, just taking over the Dodgers organization, hired Sukaforth as a coach and a scout. Rickey sent Sukaforth to approach Jackie Robinson at a Kansas City Monarchs game and to tell him that Rickey wanted to have a meeting with him. Sukaforth attended that meeting and talked about that meeting in a Baseball Hall of Fame interview in 1996. I introduced him to Mr. Rickey. Mr. Rickey said uh, he opened a conversation. All my life I've been looking for a great colored ball player. He said, uh, I have reason to think that you may be that man. And he said, uh, I need more than a great ball player. He said, I need a man that will turn the other cheek, take the worst kind of abuse that a person can be exposed to. <laughs> he wasn't exaggerating because <laughs> he knew it was waiting. And Robinson, we're talking Montreal contract to him now. A year in Montreal and up to Brooklyn. Robinson said, well, Mr. Ricky, I think I can play in Montreal. And I think I can play in Brooklyn. But he said, I'll take your judgment on that. But if you want to take this gamble, I'll promise you there'll be no incident. While Robinson played for the Montreal Royals in 1946, Sukaforth coached for Dodgers manager Leo DeRocher, did some special scouting for Ricky, and even launched a new team in Nashua, New Hampshire, in the Class B New England League. Sukaforth's efforts to forge connections between the team and the community helped ease the paths of two more African-American players, future Cy Young Award winner and Most Valuable Player Don Newcomb and Hall of Famer Roy Campanella. When Jackie reached the big leagues in 1947, DeRocher had been suspended for a year for involvement with gamblers. 
So Robinson's manager for his historic first game would be none other than Clyde Sukaforth. Interestingly, that was Robinson's first game as a Major League player, of course, but it was also Sukaforth's last game as a Major League manager. He didn't like it. He asked to be removed from the role and was replaced by Burt Schotten, who led the Dodgers starring Jackie Robinson to the National League pennant. Sukaforth was far from finished with baseball and far from finished with baseball history. In 1951, he was coaching in the Dodgers' bullpen. Manager Chuck Dressen called down for a reliever late in a pivotal game. Sukaforth had been catching in the bullpen for both Carl Erskine and Ralph Branca. He thought Branca's stuff looked better. I'm sure you can see where this is going. Based on Sukaforth's recommendation, Branca went into the game to face the New York Giants' Bobby Thompson. And the rest was history. Branca throws! Fired by the Dodgers after the next season, Sukaforth rejoined Branch Rickey, who is now the general manager of the Pirates. There, serving as a coach and occasional scout, he helped the Pirates scout the Dodger system for the 1954 Rule 5 draft. Sukaforth recommended a young Puerto Rican outfielder, whose arm, he said, was as good as Carl Ferrillo's, widely regarded as the best in the league. The Pirates accepted Sukaforth's recommendation and drafted the young Roberto Clemente. And again... The rest was baseball history. Everybody said it, they want Bobby to get that big number 3,000. Matlack on the 0-1. Bobby hits the drive for the gap in left center field. There she is. Roberto Clemente, the shot heard round the world, and Jackie Robinson. Not a bad legacy for Clyde Sukaforth. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Patrick Davitt, the Master Notes columnist at BaseballHQ.com. You can get Master Notes delivered to your email inbox every Friday in the free Fantasy Friday e-newsletter. Just go to BaseballHQ.com and sign up. Of course, we also have Master Notes here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. And that's Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, April the 15th, Jackie Robinson Day. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number 18 of the 2016 Fantasy Baseball season. In the street, Jackie Robinson hit that ball. It went zooming across the left field wall. Yeah, boy. Yes, yes, Jackie hit that ball. And when he swung his bat, the crowd went wild because he knocked that ball a solid mile. Yes, yes, Jackie hit that ball. Satchel Page is mellow, so is Caponello. New come at Dobie too. But it's a natural fact when Jackie comes to bat, the other team is through. Did you see Jackie Robinson hit that ball? Did he hit it? Yes, and that ain't all. He's so Yes, yes, Jack is real gone. From 1949, that's Did You See Jackie Robinson Hit That Ball? The Count Basie Orchestra with Taps Miller on vocals, 
in the immortal Sweets Edison on trumpet. A great way to close out Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, April the 15th, Jackie Robinson Day across the game. I also want to thank our commentators from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Our Market Watch commentators were Ray Murphy and Jock Thompson. Our Minor League Minute analyst was Rob Gordon. Our Playing Time commentator was Ryan Bloomfield. Our Frequent Flyers commentator was Alex Becky, And our Pitcher Matchups analyst was Greg Fishwick. I'm Patrick Davitt. I hope you enjoyed Master Notes this week, and I hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. Also, remember, you can stay in touch with Baseball HQ on Facebook, and we have a Twitter feed at Baseball HQ. You can also subscribe to my personal Twitter feed at Patrick Davitt, and please send us a message on our email address, bhqradio, all one word, at gmail.com, where you'll always be the first to know when a new podcast is available. More importantly, please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio, and take a second to go to iTunes and add to our 4.8 star rating. It really does help us keep the podcast going. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again Tuesday with a Tuesday Tout Expert edition of the podcast with fantasy baseball intelligence for winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio. So long. Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators or directly from BaseballHQ.com where we have an archive of past shows as well. Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt.